Despite prevention and educational programs, new HIV infections occur every year in Canada. This highlights the need for more proactive and integrated prevention programs in response to this ongoing epidemic. Two of those prevention strategies are pre-exposure prophylaxis and non-occupational post-exposure prophylaxis. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Interim Editor-in-Chief for the CMAJ, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Daryl Tan, Infectious Diseases Physician and Clinician Scientist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Dr. Tan is co-leader of the CIHR Biomedical HIV Prevention Working Group. CMAJ has just published a new Canadian guideline by the working group, and Dr. Tan is here to talk to us about the recommendations. I've reached him in Toronto. Hi, Daryl. Hello. Thanks so much for joining me this morning. We've got a bunch of questions to go through, and I wanted to start with a question about the current landscape of HIV in Canada. Can you tell us what's the prevalence of HIV in this country and how many people are newly infected every year? Sure, Diane. I think it's a really um, important question, actually, that you're asking, just because there's such a common misconception that HIV is a problem of the past. Uh, but in fact, uh, the, the prevalence, the number you asked about, is around 75,000 people or more that are thought to be living with HIV in Canada at this time. Uh, and in fact, that's a number that continues to, to go up. Uh, now, now, part of the reason that the, the prevalence of HIV is going up in Canada is for a good reason. It's because people are living longer with the more effective treatments and care that we have uh, available and we have had for many years now. Uh, but the other side of the equation is that the incidence, uh, the number of new infections that happens in Canada every year, uh, continues to be relatively stable, unfortunately. So we're seeing roughly two to 3,000 or so infections uh, year after year, uh, despite uh, all of the efforts in, in prevention and treatment that have been going on. Now, you mentioned, obviously, that there are these new infections every year. Which populations are particularly at risk? Yeah, there are a number of uh, key populations that bear a really disproportionate burden of new infections and prevalent infections in Canada year after year. Uh, and first and foremost uh, is gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men, which I'll just abbreviate as MSM or, or men who have sex with men in general. Uh, their incidence of HIV infection is actually staggeringly high. It's 131 times higher than other Canadian men, according to estimates from the Public Health Agency of Canada. So it's a real priority population that uh, has represented more than half of infections uh, year after year since the beginning of the epidemic. But, but there are other priority populations as well. So certainly uh, we know that the incidence in people who inject drugs is something like 60 times higher than the general Canadian population. People from HIV endemic countries around the world who come to Canada are at risk of acquiring HIV in Canada and are again thought to have a risk that's about six times higher than the general population. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Indigenous populations have a much higher rate than the general population as well, but between two and three times higher. Much of that concentrated in, in the prairie provinces, but also scattered across this country. So it certainly sounds like a guideline like this is really important. As you said, HIV is not an issue of the past. So you went ahead and you developed this guideline with a large group of experts. Can you tell us a bit about the scope of the guideline? Who is, the, who is it applicable to? Sure. We really developed these guidelines with uh, the clinical context in mind primarily. So by that, I mean that you know, we were thinking about uh, what's going to be useful to frontline clinicians uh, across Canada in trying to provide care to people who might find themselves at risk for HIV infection. So uh, the, we, we drew on the expertise of a whole bunch of different types of frontline clinicians, uh, specifically 
uh, infectious diseases physicians, family physicians, emergency room docs who could be prescribing uh, post-exposure prophylaxis in that context, uh, nurses, pharmacists, really with an eye to uh, helping providers care for adults who might be at risk through primarily sexual exposures to HIV, as well as injection drug using exposures to HIV. So just to make sure that we're on the same page on this, can you um, define what you mean by pre-exposure prophylaxis and what you mean by non-occupational post-exposure prophylaxis? Sure. So pre-exposure prophylaxis, which we commonly these days call PrEP, uh, technically refers to anything that a person might start using before they're actually exposed to HIV, but as well continuing after that exposure in order to decrease their risk of acquiring HIV infection. Now, uh, PrEP could be used to refer to a number of different products, and there are a number of different products under investigation, but throughout this guideline, we're really referring primarily to the use of, of very specific antiretroviral medications. Uh, there's just one or two regimens that are uh, recommended or available and proven to work in people who are HIV uninfected, who are at high and ongoing risk of infection in order to prevent uh, infection from actually happening. Non-occupational post-exposure prophylaxis, it's a mouthful, so we abbreviate that NPEP, uh, refers to a slightly different situation. This is uh, the use of, again, uh, specific antiretroviral or anti-HIV medications beginning immediately after or as soon as possible after a very specific HIV exposure has happened. It's something that can be done after someone realizes that they've been exposed, uh, and it continues for 28 days of medication. Okay, so let's start with the first one, pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP. So you recommend that in, in certain situations. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what the recommendations are? But when you're doing that, can you also tell us a little bit about the evidence that's supporting the recommendations that you have? Sure. So the way we've broken up our recommendations on PrEP is to speak about the indications for PrEP in specific population groups. And we break it down into to three main groups. The first one being uh, gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men, or MSM. The second one being um, adults who may be exposed through heterosexual activity. And then third, uh, we break it down into people who inject drugs. Now, in each of those three cases, uh, we also specify specific criteria that might, might be used to help clinicians and, and, and their patients decide that PrEP might be right for them. Uh, the evidence base on which we recommend that PrEP be used at all in those various cases is uh, based on uh, high-quality evidence, uh, namely uh, a number of different randomized controlled trials that have been done in different contexts around the world uh, at different times over the last few years, uh, really convincingly showing us that PrEP is a highly effective intervention. In each population, though, we've gone ahead and broken it down to suggest specific criteria that might be used to identify a person at higher risk than average within that group. Uh, and the strongest evidence base here is really for uh, what we've said about men who have sex with men. There's very uh, well-conducted uh, observational studies that have indicated that a number of different clinically identifiable risk factors put certain gay men and other men who have sex with men at higher risk for infection than others. Uh, specifically, those include uh, an MSM who has had a diagnosis of infectious syphilis or various rectal bacterial sexually transmitted infections, namely gonorrhea and chlamydia primarily, especially if that was in the last 12 months. Uh, secondly, if they've had use of non-occupational post-exposure prophylaxis or NPEP more than once, 
Uh, third, if they've had an ongoing sexual relationship, or if they are in currently an, an ongoing sexual relationship, I should say, with an HIV positive partner whose HIV is not suppressed. Uh, and then finally, if they're scoring highly on a validated risk index that we outline in detail in the full guideline and, and provide a, a useful table that can help clinicians very quickly uh, figure out what their risk score is. In the other populations, uh, there aren't uh, risk tools that have been developed to be used in industrialized world countries like Canada, as there has been for MSM, uh, but we recommend that PrEP be considered in, uh, for example, heterosexual individuals who are in a serodiscordant relationship, meaning they're in a relationship with a partner who is uh, living with HIV infection, but they're having condomless vaginal or anal sex with them, and that HIV-positive partner uh, is not uh, undetectable, does not have an undetectable viral load on HIV therapy. Uh, it could be considered in other situations as well on a case-by-case -case basis, of course. Uh, and then finally, with respect to people who inject drugs, we really suggest that this be considered if uh, individuals are sharing injection drug use paraphernalia, especially with other people who have uh, uh, what we call the non-negligible risk of HIV infection. Uh, again, th that refers to people who do not have a fully suppressed HIV viral load on HIV therapy. So when um, pre-exposure prophylaxis is indicated, so using, for example, the risk tool that you talked about for uh, men who have sex with men um, and these various and, and, and making decisions based on the recommendations, what would be the regimen of medications that you would be um, suggesting be used? Yeah, so we've recommended that uh, one particular regimen be used in general. Uh, that is the combination of tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate, also abbreviated TDF, together with emtricitabine, which is abbreviated FTC. Now, these two medications are actually co-formulated in a fixed-dose combination pill so that that can be taken uh, at a dose of 300-200 milligrams as just a single tablet once daily. And there's a very good evidence base, again, for this regimen having good efficacy in a variety of different populations around the world. Alternatively, uh, TDF slash FTC can also be administered on an on-demand sort of regimen. This really refers to the use of uh, just a couple of doses as a loading dose right before a potential sexual exposure happens, so 2 to 24 hours before a sexual exposure, followed by one pill daily until 48 hours have elapsed since the last sexual activity. So if, for example, somebody is uh, anticipating that they may, be, they may be exposed to sexual activity on a given night, they would take two pills uh, before that, take another pill the next day, and then a fourth pill the final day. Uh, now, this regimen has really only been studied in MSM or men who have sex with men, and for that reason, that's the only population in which we're recommending it as a potential alternative. Uh, many people may have heard of this drug that we're recommending in either the daily dosing regimen or the on-demand dosing regimen uh, as the brand name product that had been available, has been available in Canada for many years. That's called Truvada. Uh, but TDF-FTC is now actually available also as a generically manufactured medication. There's a number of different manufacturers that have come onto the market with the product in the last year. Now, in the guideline, you've included some practical advice on evaluating, monitoring patients who are on pre-exposure prophylaxis. What are some of the most important aspects of this for physicians to keep in mind? Yeah, I think there's about um, three key messages that we'd like to get across in terms of the practical uh, aspects of, of delivering PrEP. 
the first one that's that's really important is to understand the very important role that HIV testing plays in providing really either of these regimens, but uh, re really especially with PrEP. It's really critical to do HIV testing on a regular basis when someone's re receiving PrEP. Uh, in particular, it's really important to get that done before they even initiate PrEP. Uh, typically, we also suggest that that be repeated on a every three monthly basis or a quarterly basis and that renewal prescriptions not be provided and instead that we wait to see the result of that follow-up HIV test at around three months before providing another prescription for a three months duration of medications. Now, the reason that this is so important has to do with the risk of developing HIV drug resistance. Uh, we know that the medications that we're using for PrEP, uh, again, TDF with FTC, that's two medications that are effective in treating HIV. The challenge though is that if somebody inadvertently and unfortunately acquires HIV without realizing it while they're using PrEP as a strategy, uh, then, and if they continue to take their PrEP medication after acquiring that infection, then we've learned that just using two medications like that to, to effectively treat HIV unknowingly is not an effective strategy. We've learned uh, through the, the, the 1990s and early 2000s that that's a, a, a ready situation in which the virus can develop resistance. We typically require about three medications against HIV in order to treat it effectively. So it's for that reason that we really emphasize HIV testing should be done before initiating PrEP, uh, as well as on a three-monthly basis uh, while someone is receiving it. Uh, as an adjunct to that HIV testing, it's also really important to speak to patients and ask them about the potential for HIV seroconversion symptoms. Again, for the same reason, we want to be very cautious in making sure that we're not missing an incident HIV infection when someone's using this uh, intervention. So to help clinicians in identifying those seroconversion symptoms, there's a box in the guideline that talks about the number of common uh, manifestations that someone may have as they're actually acquiring HIV. They include typical flu-like symptoms, fever, myalgia, malaise, maybe a macular papular rash. But I, I like to emphasize, and the guidelines talk about how there can sometimes be what we call false localizing symptoms as well as a manifestation of, of a presenting new HIV infection, things like diarrhea, things like pharyngitis, uh, that may uh, easily trick a physician or a clinician or, or a patient themselves into thinking that an HIV infection that's happening uh, might be attributable to something else. So really focusing on picking up incident HIV infections is really critical. So you've talked a lot about, you know, be watching out for these incident infections. So how effective, if somebody were to take pre-exposure prophylaxis and do it properly, so take it as directed, how effective is it? The best data on exactly how effective uh, PrEP can be uh, really comes from the randomized controlled trials, as well as some really high quality observational studies that have been able to correlate the efficacy with people's adherence with the medication. So what we've learned through all that work is that it's very clear that if, for example, someone is taking their medication every single day, the efficacy can be well over 90%. In fact, some of the clearest data is in men who have sex with men, in which we think that if someone is really taking their medication systematically, the risk is almost 100%. It's extremely, extremely rare for someone to be fully adherent with a daily PrEP regimen and to nevertheless break through with an incident infection. Uh, we again estimate that the, the efficacy is again uh, north of 90% in heterosexual men and women, as well as people who inject drugs, although uh, the 
how exactly how close that estimate is to 100% isn't quite as certain. So it certainly would mean, uh, would indicate that probably things like condom use should continue even when people are on PrEP then? Yes, absolutely. That's one of the uh, second things that uh, I would like to really emphasize in terms of the practical advice that we offer to clinicians as they're providing PrEP, that we really want to uh, use every PrEP encounter as an opportunity to engage with our clients or patients, talk to them about different risk reduction strategies, definitely including condoms. Uh, some people have uh, thought of PrEP and PEP or been skeptical of the potential of PrEP and PEP because they feel like these are being offered as a replacement to condoms. And that's really not the sense or the spirit in which we're uh, trying to promote their use. It's really to uh, allow people to have a broader uh, range of options uh, because we know that, for example, condom use, as much as it's uh, important and as much as many people do want to use them regularly, uh, it's, it's diff just difficult for many people to realistically apply them systematically every single time. And so it's important to have a range of other options available. So during our routine PrEP and, and NPEP encounters, we emphasize uh, adherence support for the intervention, but as well uh, risk reduction counseling in terms of quantum use, in terms of other behaviors, uh, in terms of talking to partners about their HIV status, about their sexually transmitted infection status as well. And uh, in, in using a combination strategy like this, we're hopeful that we can move towards uh, a situation where we may have uh, no more new infections in Canada in the future. Another really important point that we want to emphasize for clinicians as they're providing PrEP to patients is that we want to encourage very thorough screening for sexually transmitted infections at every single visit that someone comes for their PrEP. So typically that's going to be every three months. And what we mean by thorough STI screening is looking for bacterial infections like syphilis with a blood test, so syphilis serology, looking for uh, gonorrhea and chlamydia infections uh, using a urine a nucleic acid amplification test or NAT test, but also to think about gonorrhea and chlamydia infection that could be present in other anatomic locations, in particular the pharynx, if the patient has been giving oral sex, as well as in the rectum, if they've been engaged in receptive anal sex. These are particularly important to do because infections at those anatomic sites will definitely be missed by strictly doing a urine test, and they're often asymptomatic. In fact, the, the frequency with which they're asymptomatic is very high. So it, we really have to rely on thorough screening tests for patients who may come in with no symptoms of, at all but have had the risk exposure uh, in order to pick these up, in order to stop onward transmission of the STIs. We know that we have uh, coincident raging epidemics, unfortunately, of these bacterial ST, uh, STIs uh, in Canada and have had for a couple of decades now. And thorough screening of patients who are at risk can be a really important intervention to try to curb the onward spread of those infections. Okay, so I'd like to switch tacks right now. So we were talking so far about pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP. Now I'd like to switch to the recommendations regarding the non-occupational post-exposure prophylaxis. So when should that be considered? And can you tell us a little bit about the recommendations and what supports them? Sure. So non-occupational post-exposure prophylaxis, or, or NPEP, is something that we recommend for use in an HIV-negative person who has had a very recent uh, actual or potential exposure to HIV, typically through sexual activity or through, again, sharing of uh, injection drug use paraphernalia. Now, it's really important, though, that this be introduced uh, as soon as possible after that exposure has happened, uh, and absolutely no later than 72 hours after 
that, uh, in, uh, that exposure has happened. Uh, the reason for that window admittedly is not based on uh, high quality human data for logistical and ethical reasons. It's never really been possible to, to do studies to definitively prove at which point uh, these interventions need to be introduced. So it is based on lower quality data, specifically animal models that have shown us at what point an infection becomes irreversible. The other aspect of the equation is to think about both the type of exposure that's happened and combine that with some thinking around the likelihood that the person or the source of that potential exposure is or is not infected with HIV in a way that would be readily transmitted to a person. So when clinicians are thinking about whether or not NPEP is indicated, uh, we suggest that they think about three different categories of risk that uh, a source person may have transmissible HIV infection, and that they combine thinking about that with thinking about three different categories of risk of HIV transmission, something that really depends on the type of exposure that's happened. So just to go back to that first uh, category, uh, set of categories first, the categories of risk that a person has transmissible HIV infection, we really distinguish between a substantial risk, uh, which is defined as, for example, a source person who is known to have HIV uh, and is known not to have a good virologic control on treatment, uh, or potentially in the situation where the, the source person uh, is of unknown HIV status, which commonly happens, uh, but is from a, a key population that's known to have a high prevalence of HIV compared to the general population in Canada. Examples might include uh, men who have sex with men or persons who inject drugs. The second category of risk that's uh, very clear uh, is uh, when sometimes people have uh, a negligible or virtually a no risk of trans having transmissible HIV infection. This is if somebody is confirmed to be HIV negative, if they're known to have HIV but have an undetectable viral load and no sexually transmitted infections uh, at the time of the exposure, that's also considered to have uh, virtually no risk of transmission or uh, someone from the general population who might be HIV status unknown. And then the third category is a little bit trickier. Uh, there are situations sometimes when someone's HIV positive and, and thought to have an undetectable viral load um, but is known to have a sexually transmitted infection at the same time. In that unique circumstance, uh, there's some evidence to suggest that the presence of that other STI could increase the risk of transmissibility. And it's for that reason that we've uh, urged a little bit of caution that someone might consider that risk low, but non-zero. So that's the first category of thinking around the, uh, the risk of uh, a person having transmissible HIV. And then we need to also think about the risk of HIV transmission according to the type of exposure that's happened. And this is a lot simpler. We really distinguish between three levels of risk, high, moderate, and low. The high level uh, risk would be in the situation of receptive anal sex or needle sharing. The moderate category of risk would be in the situation of insertive anal sex or either insertive and receptive, either insertive or receptive uh, vaginal sex. And then the low risk would be uh, other sorts of situations where we can't be absolutely sure that there's no risk. Things like perhaps uh, sharing sex toys or, or blood on compromised skin. And then the guideline goes through how a clinician can combine these two variables and very quickly come up with situations in which NPEP should be initiated, really if there's a substantial likelihood that the source has transmissible HIV, plus they've had a high or moderate risk exposure, in situ as well as situations where NPEP should be considered. 
So that's again, if someone has had a low likelihood of transmissible HIV and a high or moderate risk of uh, risk type of exposure. And in all the other situations, NPIP is really not required and all that's needed is some careful counseling with the patient. So when, um, let's say a decision is made that NPAP or non-occupational post-exposure prophylaxis is warranted in a situation, what uh, medication, what regimens do you suggest? So there are uh, three different regimens that we recommend as uh, potential NPEP regimens. All three of them combine the same medication that we use for pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP, that's TDF with FTC or tenofovir-dizoproxyfumarate with emtricitabine in a single fixed-dose top combination tablet. And then we combine that with one of three different options that clinicians can, can choose between. The first is Darunavir, 800 milligrams with 100 milligrams of Ritonavir as a booster. The second option is Dolutegravir, which is uh, dosed at 50 milligrams once daily. And the third is Raltegravir, and that's dosed at 400 milligrams twice daily. And in the guideline, we really go through uh, different situations in which clinicians may opt to use one or another of those options. There's a table that outlines the pros and cons of each one, and institutions that are setting up policies around how they'd like to make uh, NPEP available might want to think about those factors when they're deciding what they might offer themselves as their uh, typical go-to or first-line option. They really have to do with considerations like the potential for drug interactions with other concomitant medications a patient may be taking, which is more of an issue with the darunavir regimen than with the others. The potential for exposure to a drug-resistant virus in which we do favor use of the darunavir regimen um, as well as factors like the potential for um, adherence with the regimen. We recognize that raltegravir, even though it's very, very well tolerated, uh, it, it is a twice-daily medication. And for some people, uh, that may be a bit more of a challenge. That being said, we also need to think about the volume of data that's available to support all these. There is a little bit more evidence for use of raltegravir in PEP uh, than compared to the other drugs, which we have uh, a little bit less data on in PEP although lots of evidence uh, in terms of how well they perform when used for HIV treatment. Now, how long would people take one of these regimens? The regimen that we recommend for PEP is really 28 days. Uh, that's a standard duration that has been in the uh, literature for many, many years since PEP has uh, had first been used. Uh, again, it's based on lower quality evidence, uh, specifically animal models that have shown that 28 days compared with shorter durations uh, seems to have better efficacy. One of the recommendations around MPEP was quite practical, and it had to do with use or not of a starter pack. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Starter packs are an important thing to think about because they were really designed uh, for, as a way to help institutions protocolize the delivery of, of MPEP and make it more uh, accessible to, to people. Uh, the, the challenge, the idea behind a starter pack is, is simply this. Uh, oftentimes when someone is looking to, to receive NPEP, they're going to present to somewhere like an emergency department uh, because they really realize that time is of the essence and it really is an emergency situation that needs to be triaged accordingly. In the emergency departments, though, we recognize that it can be challenging sometimes to, to do a, a really thorough uh, investigation into the nature of the exposure, especially the, the health status of the source person, uh, and the level of anxiety in the patient, uh, him or herself, is often uh, quite high because of what's just happened. 
And it's for that reason that often emergency departments would start people on PEP by giving them what we call a starter pack. So that's just a small number of days worth of medications, perhaps three days, perhaps up to five days. Uh, and they can discharge the, the uh, person from the emergency department having initiated their first dose right there in a time-sensitive way in the eMERGE. But they also leave with a referral to a specialist uh, who, who knows a lot about this area, often an infectious diseases specialist, uh, and that appointment needs to happen within those three to five days. At that follow-up visit, then, the infectious diseases specialist has a bit more time to really investigate this a little bit more carefully with the person. There may have been an opportunity to go back and get more information from the source person, uh, reassess the regimen, reassess the need for PEP in the first place, and the, the patient uh, themselves may be uh, a little bit less anxious because they've already initiated on the intervention. So with that background, the whole question around whether starter packs are, are useful or not um, has actually been uh, reviewed in a systematic review. And what that has shown is that in general, uh, although they are a very practical intervention, as we've just talked about, uh, they actually are associated with lower overall PEP completion rates, most likely because we effectively start someone on an intervention, but we don't give them everything they need at that first encounter to actually finish it. Um, and unfortunately, there is a little bit of attrition in most PEP programs such that not everybody who we recommend come back for follow-up is actually able to do that. So for that reason, uh, in the guideline, we recommend that if the indication for NPEP is very clearly established right up front, perhaps in the emergency department, perhaps uh, in an outpatient setting, then that the full course of PEP can be dispensed right from the outset rather than providing a starter pack. Uh, but this is a weak recommendation. It is based on high quality evidence. Uh, but the, the pros and cons of this issue of the of, of using a starter pack or not really have to be taken into account and institutions may uh, choose to make uh, slightly different uh, decisions for their setting depending on uh, their patient population and what they think is most practical in their setting. Okay, so now you also have some other, um, as you did with uh, PrEP, you have some practical advice for physicians in this guideline um, when providing um, non-occupational post-exposure prophylaxis. What should physicians keep in mind? Yeah, there's a few practical uh, tips that we think are, are particularly important when providing NPEP. Uh, the first of them is just that we need to be very careful about the timing of initiation. As we've already talked about, uh, NPEP should be used and should be started as soon as possible after an exposure, but no later than 72 hours after that exposure. And that has implications in terms of how we set up systems to, to make PEP available. We need to make sure that people who are maybe uh, in need of PEP are, are aware of this, uh, that urgency room settings, for example, are able to triage people to a high CTAS score, uh, and that health services be organized in such a way that the medication someone may need to initiate, uh, really in a situation where hours make a difference, uh, uh, can be available. A second important practical point is that we really emphasize as much as possible trying to evaluate the source person, and so encouraging patients to see whether they can go back to their partner uh, and have a, an open conversation with them to just to learn a little bit more about their health status. There's actually some evidence out there from Switzerland that shows that in situations uh, where clinicians have been able to engage with the patient and obtain more information uh, to, to contact a source uh, uh, person and have that person undergo testing in a health history, that they were actually able to stop or prevent uh, the need for NPEP in the, uh, in the index patient in, in all but something like 6% of, of cases. So it really is a useful thing to try to do when feasible. Uh, a third thing is to really make sure that you do whatever is possible to um, develop some rapport with the, with the patient, to, to do whatever you can to ensure that follow-up 
actually happens. As we've already mentioned, attrition in PEP programs, unfortunately, it is common. Uh, and so, but it's really important because we really want to make sure that people are able to follow up and get their final testing done to know their outcome from this whole intervention. Uh, and so whatever can be done to encourage adherence, uh, not only with the medications, but also with the follow-up schedule is really important. Uh, and then the final thing I'd just like to emphasize is that we really think of NPEP as a useful kind of entry point into care. Um, folks who are uh, interested in using NPEP are probably at a slightly higher general risk of HIV infection than the general population. And the very act of coming to a health service and requesting this and asking for an intervention uh, is really uh, demonstrative of that person's willingness to engage in some sort of care services. So we should really harness that opportunity to not only deliver PEP according to uh, the guidelines that we've laid out, but also uh, think about how we can use this as an opportunity to link them into other kinds of care that they may need. For example, uh, we know that other sorts of comorbid conditions such as uh, those related to substance use or to mental health challenges can be common in folks who find themselves at risk of HIV. And sometimes folks haven't really had the opportunity to have that explored with a, with a care provider before. And harnessing that opportunity to talk about other uh, things that are impacting on someone's overall HIV risk, uh, et cetera, can be a really useful adjunct to the actual delivery of the biomedical intervention in and of itself. And I guess one of the things is when you have somebody who's in, let's say, fairly commonly for non-occupational post-exposure prophylaxis, that that might be a circumstance where you might be talking to them about perhaps they should be using pre-exposure prophylaxis. Absolutely, I'd agree with that, Diane. That's um, another kind of nice illustration of the way in which NPEP can, first of all, be a nice entry point into care uh, for folks. Uh, as well, it's consistent with what we've actually recommended in terms of the specific indications for initiating PrEP in the section on PrEP indications, specifically in, in uh, men who have sex with men, whereas there, where, where there's uh, uh, lots of studies, observational studies that have shown that asking for NPEP recurrent, recurrently is associated with a higher subsequent incidence of HIV infection. So we've covered a lot of ground today, but I know this is a very um, a complex and important topic. If physicians would like to know more about these two types of HIV prophylaxis, are there any resources that you would recommend? Absolutely. I think that some of the key resources are really summarized in our, our full guideline document. What's going to be published in CMAJ is the synopsis uh, that goes through all of the graded recommendations, the strength of those recommendations, and a list of some of the key practical points in a, in a useful kind of boxed uh, or table format. That is an appendix to the main document though, also available on the website and uh, available on the website of the uh, CHR Canadian HIV Trials Network or CTN is going to be the full guideline document that really goes through in detail the full evidence base uh, behind each of the recommendations, talks about some of the data that supports the practical recommendations that we've made as well. Uh, and I think that'll be a useful place for people to go to, to learn more about the theory and the data behind all of these uh, practical points that we've tried to summarize in the main document. So just before we go, any final thoughts for our listeners? Uh, yeah, I think um, maybe a couple quick thoughts. One is that we really want to, again, emphasize that PrEP and PEP are conceived of by our panel as a key component or a key set of components of, of a combination approach to HIV prevention. We've got lots of tools these days. Uh, these are more tools to add to that toolkit. We know that it's not a one-size-fits-all sort of situation uh, and that we need uh, 
lots of tools available, including behavior change, including condom use, including attention to coexisting mental health problems, as well as these biomedical strategies, so that people can think about how they can combine them in their lives, combine them at, uh, at different times in their lives, uh, and how we can combine them at a population level to really work towards uh, eliminating new infections in Canada in the future. Uh, another quick point that I wanted to emphasize is that we really hope these guidelines will help a whole range of different providers, and particularly the, the generalist audience that CMAJ uh, has, to consider getting more involved in, in prescribing these interventions. I think historically, a lot of providers have perhaps shied away from this a little bit because uh, HIV medications have historically been a more complicated and, and specialized field. But what we really try to convey in the guidelines is that these are really primary prevention sorts of interventions for people who are uh, potentially at, at very high risk of a significant health condition. And uh, hopefully by going through the recommendations and, and learning about how, how safe and effective uh, PrEP and NPEP uh, really are, uh, we can get more and more primary care providers especially involved in providing these interventions to their patients. And then maybe just the last point I'll uh, emphasize is that as much as we wanna make this information available and, and encourage their use when appropriate in, in those who find themselves at greater risk, well, we recognize that access to the medications uh, continues to be a barrier, uh, unfortunately, in a context where there isn't yet uh, universal pharmacare. Um, province by province, the governments have, uh, in some cases, put uh, PrEP, for example, onto the public formulary, and we, we applaud those, those, uh, those moves. Uh, but there certainly is a lot of attention that continues to be needed in terms of uh, increasing access to the medications themselves because they really can be so effective at preventing HIV. So, Daryl, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about this really important issue. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I've been speaking with Dr. Daryl Tan, infectious diseases physician and clinician scientist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, as well as co-leader of the CIHR Biomedical HIV Prevention Working Group. To read the full guideline he co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. While you're there, you can browse and listen to any one of our 136 past episodes. Thanks for listening. <music>